All right, good morning again. Let's take out our Bibles, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you and you'd like to not uh, look at your technology, you can find one, hopefully, in the seat pockets close to you. And if you are a child of technology, I'll assume you're looking at God's Word and not at uh, the Book of Face. So we're just going to prayerfully consider that. We're going to make our way to Act, or Acts, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to continue our journey through this 15th chapter as we make our way uh, down the home stretch of what started back in February with our journey through the first letter to the Corinthians. As you guys make your way to chapter 15, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul planted this church in Acts chapter 18. And so since he's planted this church, he's now uh, gone elsewhere, continued his uh, church planting mission. And as he it was going, he received letters from Corinth explaining issues that had taken place within the church. And through these first six chapters, he was predominantly answering uh, issues or addressing issues that were brought up by a lady named Chloe and her household. And so this was one that he had listened to and one that he had trusted. And the biggest issue that he was addressing inside the church in Corinth was the issue of divisiveness, that the church had become uh, divided. Now, there were all sorts of other uh, malicious kind of sins taking place, but Paul intentionally addressed divisiveness first because that was truly at the root at what was happening internally. Uh, they become carnal, is what uh, Paul said. In other words, they were believers, but they were relying upon what the flesh desired, what the flesh wanted. And so as a result, they become uh, very, very selfish as a group of people. And so as Paul then transitioned in chapter 7, he begins to now address uh, issues brought up by other people within the church, likely church leaders who had all kinds of of questions for the Apostle Paul. And so in chapter 7, he addressed marriage and divorce and slavery. He, in chapters 8 through 10, talked about our Christian liberties. What can we do with this newfound freedom we have in Christ Jesus? He then, in chapter 11, talked about church uh, conduct and authority and what it should look like in our lives. Uh, chapters 12 through 14, we addressed uh, spiritual gifts. And whether Paul was taking these in order that they wrote them or he was just simply organizing them as he saw fit, either way, we now arrive in chapter 15 and the topic is the resurrection of the dead. And I shared this with you last week as we begin the chapter that uh, 58 verses would be too much for us to cover, uh, not to mention that uh, arguably this is the greatest chapter in the New Testament covering the resurrection that I believe has ever been written. And so we wanted to make sure we spent time going through this chapter. And it's why I encourage you last week, and I encourage you again, uh, there's Bible study notes in the seat pockets in front of you. If you want to follow along with us, uh, we've got a few scriptural references that we're going to address as we go through uh, God's Word today. But what we looked at at the beginning of chapter 15 is really the issue and the reason Paul's addressing the resurrection of the dead is that they were being pressed in on by this Greco-Roman culture. And so I know it's hard for us to believe, and so you guys might have to go there with me in your mind, that culture could press into the church. It was supposed to be the other way around, that the church was actually supposed to influence the culture. But I'm sure all of you were taking that giant leap that maybe culture could influence the church itself, and that's what was taking place here in Corinth. That the Greco-Roman culture had begun to permeate into the church. And one of the things the Greeks absolutely refused to believe was the resurrection of the dead. And so they uh, believed that we were these spiritual beings, but what happened in the body didn't matter. And so the really the insidious thing that was taking place 
in them is that if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then what happens is uh, anything you do in this body, it doesn't have any effect on all of eternity. And so you might as well just let it rip. I mean, get after it in these bodies because these things are trash. They're getting thrown away if there's no resurrection of the dead. And so this is the philosophy and the mindset that was now pressing into the church. And so through the first 18 verses, what Paul essentially did is he systematically worked through Scripture to show to them just what it looks like if there is no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then guess what? Jesus has not risen from the dead. And if Jesus has not risen from the dead, when we arrived in verse 19, he put a cap on it like this. Uh, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, then everything we're doing, helping others, taking care of others, sharing the gospel message, you are absolutely wasting your time. Because the only hope we have is right here. This is your heaven. And as I shared with you uh, last week, that if we're carving this place out to be heaven, we can absolutely go for it. But this makes for one hell of a heaven. This is no kind of heaven that any one of us would want to truly uh, live out. There's an end to this life. And so what Paul shares with them is, here's the reality, a dead Savior is no Savior at all. But, verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead. The reality is Christ is risen from the dead. And so he finished his time with us last week, sharing with us that as a result of him rising from the dead, now death itself has been conquered. In fact, what Jesus tells John in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, is that he now possesses, he holds in his hand the keys to hell and death. It's been conquered. His enemies have been made his footstool. And so with that said, that brings us to verse 29 as we continue. Otherwise, what they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all. And so, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, as Paul's addressing resurrection, what he is now addressing is this uh, pagan religious tradition where they could be baptized for someone who had already passed on before them. They weren't sure about a family member or relative, whether or not they were going to make it on the good side. And so, they could substitute themselves and be baptized uh, in place of them. And what Paul is saying is, uh, if there's no resurrection, baptism itself is a picture of resurrection. It's the old going away and the new rising up. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you even performing this practice whatsoever? Now, Paul was not advocating baptism of the dead. In fact, Jesus himself made it very clear in Luke chapter 16 that for every person, we must make a decision for ourselves. That the reality of this relationship we can now have with God is it's a very personal relationship. You probably heard it said uh, in here before that God has many children, but He has no grandchildren. This is a personal one-on-one relationship that we have an opportunity to enter into with Him. And as Jesus was sharing this parable in Luke chapter 16, this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You might remember from your days of Sunday school, as He's sharing this story, He wants to make it abundantly clear that every person is responsible for themselves in their own decision. In fact, as the rich man could look over and see Abraham with Lazarus there in paradise, he cries out in verse 30 and says, Father Abraham, if one goes from the dead, they will repent. He's crying out to please go back to my family members who are still alive, who still have a decision to be made, and send somebody back to encourage them, to to make a decision to change their life. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets 
neither will they be persuaded, uh, though one rise from the dead. They're not listening to God's word. And so it doesn't matter that one rises from the dead. And in fact, for many who had rejected the gospel, they were not listening to one who had risen from the dead. That's the reality. This is the reason people are spending eternity in hell. That's what uh, Jesus was going to make clear through this story. Now, as he continues, Paul, in verse 30 of chapter 15, he says, Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. And so Paul here is saying, look, why is it that I do what I do? If there's no promise of the resurrection, here I am giving my life, I've given myself over to this thing, and if there was no promise in the future, why in the world would I do this? If I didn't have hope that there was something much better. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll be there in a few months, uh, is Paul was addressing his resume, if you want to call it that, the things that he'd experienced in his life. In verse 24, Paul says, uh, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five different occasions, Paul was lashed across the back 39 times because of his faith. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils at sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and in toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes up upon me daily, my concern for all the churches. Paul's like, you want to talk about suffering? I have suffered I have been through a tremendous amount. And yet, in spite of that entire resume, why would he do that if there was no hope in the resurrection? It would all be a complete waste of time. He's literally been beaten to death for something that was a lie. And so this is what Paul is trying to communicate. But the promise of the resurrection is what encourages him to keep going. Verse 32, he says, If in the manner of men I have fought with the beast at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? if the dead do not rise. And then he quotes a Greek saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so they had this eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of a mindset. But what Paul says is, why on earth would I have have contended with the beasts in Ephesus? Now what in the world is Paul talking about? Well, so glad you asked. Acts chapter 19. After Paul had planted the church in Corinth, he then made his way on to uh, Ephesus, where he began to share the gospel. And there was a tremendous uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and people were coming to know Jesus. And they were, they were turning away from paganism and from Judaism, and they were becoming followers of the way. Paul was performing all sorts of miracles around Ephesus. In fact, uh, demons were being driven out of people. This was a place of great demonic possession. Uh, so much so that there were some uh, Jewish exorcists. They were professional exorcists that were struggling with demon exorcism. And so they watched Paul driving demons out of people there in Ephesus. And so in verse 13, they decided to try this move themselves. They they cried out to this man who was demon-possessed. They said, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. That was their move. Like, we're going to exorcise you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Now you can imagine if this was a movie scene. I mean, that head probably turned around with crazy eyes and some kind of deep voice. 
This demon said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? That's the point in time where if this were a movie, uh, I'm going to wet myself. I'm just, I'm evacuating. I'm like, that's it. I'm running away from this deal. And what we're told is the demon-possessed man, he jumped up, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, I have seen some melees in my day. I've been a, a part of a few tussles, but I've seen some guys uh, get uh, get it handed to them. Let's just put it that way. But I have never in my life seen a dude uh, beaten so bad he was naked. I mean, this guy was beat. They beat these seven guys where they didn't have any clothes on. They took off. That's some kind of a beatdown. But in light of that, here's the, the thing about it. Because Paul had been able to exercise the demonic through the name of Jesus, people saw these fakes these phonies, and they were actually encouraged by what Jesus was able to do by the true followers. And so the name of God was actually proclaimed. The name of Jesus went forth even through these false witnesses to the point to where those who had magic books and they had these idols of Diana, they threw them in a big pile and lit them on fire. I mean, million, our money, millions of dollars worth of magic Bibles and or magic books and uh, idols to Diana were all thrown in and just tossed away. And, and so this city of Ephesus was known as the place where uh, Diana was actually worshipped. And they made all these little idols, these little false goddesses. Here's a picture of one of them up here on the screen for you. There were these weird-looking, multi-breasted goddess statues that they would sell. But the thing is, as Paul was leading people to the Lord, People were throwing all that away. And you know what happened? Uh, all the guys who made those in Ephesus that were making millions off of them, uh, they got very upset. And so they began to start a riot. They went up against the Apostle Paul. Who is this guy? And a riot broke out there in Ephesus. So here's Paul proclaiming the gospel and thousands of people now chanting, if you go down through this, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! What Paul no doubt was considering as he was writing to the church in Ephesus was this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. I lost Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, where he encouraged the church in Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And so what Paul is saying is, look, I withstood the beasts of Ephesus. He wasn't talking about any flesh and blood. He was talking about the very principles and powers and authorities of darkness that had come up against, that had gripped this area. It's important to note that as we go out there for Jesus, we are taking ground from the enemy, and he does not take to it kindly. But as Paul is sharing with them back in Corinthians, he says, Now why in the world would I withstand the very beasts of Ephesus, the powers of darkness? Why would I want to go into that mess and have a riot all around me if the gospel was not that valuable? If there was not a promise for something even greater beyond this? Verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. What Paul is sharing is something that as parents you probably shared with your kids before, right? That 
that you become like the people you hang out with. So who are the people you're surrounding yourself with? And, and in uh, business leadership, it's popular these days to take these concepts that are actually biblical, and then people make millions off of them because they present it like it was their own great idea. But one of those business concepts is uh, you, you become like the five people you surround yourself with the most. And that's actually scriptural. This is what Paul is saying, is that evil company corrupts good habits, that he had given them good habits and things that were healthy and pointed them towards righteousness, but because of evil company, because they had allowed compromise to, to enter their church, they were becoming corrupted. What Paul is encouraging us in is that it is very important what we allow in. The things we hear, the things we see, the things we taste and touch, those things can uh, permeate into the church, into our homes, into our workplace, into our very bodies. And as we allow it, it can corrupt good habits. What James, the half-brother of Jesus, would say in James chapter 1, verse 14, is, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see, compromise always leads to corruption little bit here, a little bit there. That's not too bad. That won't hurt me too bad. And the next thing you know, it leads to all-out corruption. And corruption always ends in death. This is what Paul wants to encourage them to steer clear from, and so does our Lord and Savior. Now, verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what body do they come? And so Paul, now assuming they've got this question that, uh, what happens then if we're raised from the dead? What does this look like? And so he's anticipating this question, knowing that in their minds, they're assuming this thing looks like the walking dead. Right? There's a bunch of zombies. They've gone up. That's the reason we're storing all these guns. The stinking zombie apocalypse is upon us. I knew it. And so Paul's assuming this is their question. And so he goes on in verse 36. A foolish one. What? You sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps weed or some other grain. But God gives a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. And so Paul gives them a very practical, real example. He says, consider nature. Look at these little seeds. And if you, you consider like a little seed packet you get, at the rural kings, and you get the little a carnation packet. You pull out those seeds, and what's it look like? It's brown, and it's boring, and there's there's nothing there, presumably, until what? You plant it. You put it in the ground. The seed dies. The seed breaks. The roots go down. And what comes up is something you could never expect, something absolutely beautiful that looks entirely different than what you planted. And so as he's giving this them this example, he's trying to build this idea that, look, the seed has to first be broken and has to die so that something beautiful, something actually eternal can be born. Verse 39, he says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men and another flesh of animals and another of fish and another of birds. And there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. And so now he's trying to make it very clear that there's an order to nature. That they, in their Greco-Roman culture, were blending all these things together. Gods that were part fish and part animal. And they were so confused. 
Not that any people in our society could ever be confused. But Paul wants to make it very clear. There were specific kinds that God had created, that he had labeled specific types of flesh. But in that, there were different types of bodies, a terrestrial body and a celestial body. And for us, these terrestrial bodies, they carry around our soul and our spirit, but they're also very earthy. They were meant for this planet. In, in fact, when you consider it, any time you remove the body from this planet, we have to do all kinds of things so that we can survive. I was made, God designed me to withstand 14 pounds per square inch of pressure on my body. If you give me too little, uh, I explode. If you give me too much, I implode because these bodies were specifically designed for this planet. In fact, if you decided to scuba dive, what do you have to do? You have to go down with the tank because this body was meant for 21% oxygen, 78% nitrogen. I can only breathe a certain atmosphere. And so Paul's pointing out these things that these earthly bodies have design limitations. There's only so many places that they can travel and they only last so long. So there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another in glory. So also it is the resurrection of the dead. So now Paul's transitioned from nature to something celestial. What he's encouraging them to do is look at the sky. As you look up at the sky, you see all these stars, and they shine differently. There's some that shine brighter than others. And so the celestial body is going to be drastically different than these earthly bodies. He, he's trying to give them a comparison. Not saying we, we will be stars, but he's saying we will all shine differently. We will have different glories when our resurrected body comes forth. And you have to wonder, why do some receive different glories than another? I'm so glad you asked. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel writes, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so why do we have different glories? Because there are some who've turned more to righteousness possibly than others. And what the encouragement here is that as we live and as we go, um, there is an eternal connection to what we do in this life terrestrially. That as we turn people to righteousness, to a right relationship with God, we have the opportunity to actually enjoy the riches of that. This is God doing all the work, by the way. We're simply just pointing to Jesus, pointing to the cross. But as we point people to Him with how we act and how we operate and how we speak to them, we are then given this wonderful opportunity to have glory for all of eternity. And so Paul's connecting all that together for us. Now back to verse 42. He says, There is see also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. And so what he's saying here is that what is put in the ground, it is planted and it decays. It's going to rot and go away. But that is not the end. 
that is merely the beginning of things to come. And so he's encouraging them in that. Now, as we continue here in verse 44, there is a natural body, and there is also a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And so God makes it very clear that the first Adam, in fact, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, after the fall, after Adam gives himself over to his own selfishness, he's then separated from God for all of eternity. And what he makes it clear is the separation that he now experiences through sin is going to leave him in the dust. That he is made from the ground. In fact, the same 17 elements that are in a clod of dirt out there are what make up these bodies that carry you around. And so, congratulations, we're all a bunch of dirt clods. So welcome in, you bunch of dirt clods. And as we experience Jesus, what we know is, because of the sin, we are separated. There is a, a separation from God. It's an eternal issue that we cannot correct ourselves. So from the, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And so from the first Adam, we've got this separation because of sin. But with the second Adam, speaking now of Jesus, the curse that Adam experienced has been broken because of the power of the resurrection. And so through His Spirit, we now have an opportunity to receive His Spirit just through simple belief in Him. And the proof is the resurrection. And so if His payment on the cross was for our sins for all of eternity, the proof that the payment was accepted, the receipt that it was accepted, is the resurrection from the dead. And so praise the Lord, we have this wonderful proof to be able to point to. Now verse 46, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. And so Paul's trying to point to, there is a clear order of things. There's an order in what God has done, that the order goes from natural to spiritual. It's not the other way around. And the natural man must die so that the spiritual man can be born again. And so as the natural man passes away, as we give ourselves over to Jesus, then the spiritual man comes alive. Now, what Paul also mentioned earlier is that he dies daily. And the same thing happens for us. The natural man, he sometimes dies a really slow death. But as the spiritual man comes forth, what Jesus encourages Nicodemus in is this is the way to the kingdom of heaven. He meets with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And uh, Nick has got some questions. Jesus answers him in verse 3 and says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And so what he's encouraging Nicodemus is, we are born of water. We are born naturally as the natural man. But as we give ourselves over to Jesus, we then have the opportunity to be born spiritually for all of eternity. And so you may have heard this said before, but as we are born uh, twice, we only die once. But if we are born once, we have to die twice. And so here's this beautiful promise of the gospel. Jesus encouraging them, you must be born again. We have to have the natural man come forth as the spiritual man dies. Now, verse 
47. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. And so the first man was made, comprised of dust. And uh, David, as he was writing in Psalm 103, was considering this. I'll pick up in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. But He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Thank you, Lord. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. For as far as the east is from the west, so far He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, and He remembers that we are dust. David says He knows our frame. He remembers how we were made. He knows that we're all a little bit dusty. We got a little bit of dirt on our shoes. And here's why I'm encouraged by that. He's not surprised that we're made of earth. So often we set goals and expectations. We've got all these things that we think we should be able to do, especially as we're young. And then as we go through life, what happens is we got failure after failure after failure. But what David was reflecting upon, and what God wants us to know is, while we, at least for me, I'm often surprised at my failure. I'm usually shocked by it. Like, I cannot believe I did that. God is never surprised. He is never shocked by our failure. He knows exactly what our frame is comprised of. He knows that we're made of dust. But here's the beautiful thing. is He has made us, created us to be these earthen vessels, these clay pots. The beauty as we experience Jesus is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4-7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not us. But as we exist as these earthen vessels, as we accept Jesus, we now have this unbelievable treasure inside these clay pots. And the treasure isn't, isn't anything we did. It's Jesus living in us. As He exists in us, there is now this, this treasure inside the, earth, the earthen vessel. And Jesus is the treasure. What He tells the church in Colossae is, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like this is the hope you have someday. It's actually Jesus in you. The down payment for your eternal future is Jesus Christ planted in you. It's not the work of your hands. One final spot to go on that. Exodus chapter 20. I know you guys love Old Testament time. So here in Exodus 20, this is famous because Moses receives the Ten Commandments. But after he's received the Ten Commandments, in chapter 20, verse 24, the Lord says, an altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. Verse 25, And if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. The reason I bring that up is God didn't want anything man-made to represent Him. He, he wanted us just how we are. And see, so often we, we get it in our head that I've got I've to hewn the stone a little bit. I've got to chip away at this thing. If I'm going to come to Jesus, I've got to get it cleaned up. I've got to get it all together. I've got to shave off all the bad parts. I've got to present myself so very acceptable. Here I am, Lord. I've, I've made myself perfect. But the reality is we never really get there. 
we never really get it all cleaned up. And what Jesus, what God is communicating here through the pen of Moses, and Jesus wants us to understand is he wasn't looking for that anyway. He wasn't looking for you to get it all cleaned up. He was looking for you to present yourself as an uncut stone, as an earthen altar, so that his glory could actually shine forth. That it's it's in your cracks, in your brokenness, where his glory can actually shine. And so as we get real with one another, and we say, here's my struggles, here's the things that are all rough and unhewn about me, Jesus can actually be glorified through that. We continue here in verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. You see, as we realize in this room, we're nothing but a bunch of earthen vessels. In fact, we're broken vessels. You guys are a bunch of crackpots. <laughs> Me too. As we realize that, what used to try to proclaim the earthly man, where I wanted to show how I got it together, how I got it all going on, now we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. And so through the cracks and through the brokenness, his glory gets to shine forth. People get to see Jesus lived out in our lives. His glory gets to shine. But someday, and this is the beautiful part, someday the only thing people are going to see is him. Do you realize that? In your heavenly body, when people see you shine, it's not going to be you shining. It's actually going to be you reflecting. You're going to reflect the glory of Jesus. It's going to be His glory. So when they look at me, you're not going to see cracks. You're not going to see brokenness. You're going to see nothing but the glory of Jesus. I'm going to be there in my new heavenly body, and it's going to be awesome. You know what I always wanted to do? I'm going to tell you. I wanted to take the ball, one dribble, drop step, dunk it right in your face. That's what I desired. But this earthly body can't do it. Someday, in my heavenly body, when I got this celestial thing, you're going to see me hanging on a rim just a little bit. And I'm kidding, but I'm serious at the same time. There is a glory, an eternal promise we have of a body that is so much grander than we could possibly wrap our brains around. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. He wants to make this abundantly clear that these bodies were only intended for earth. They're terrestrial. But the celestial body that we've been promised, it is meant for heaven. What we know and we realize as we grow older, I don't know about you guys, but man, this tabernacle is falling apart. At a rapid pace, this thing is falling apart. I think I pulled a hammy getting out of bed. I mean, I don't I don't know what's going on, but things, things are cracking and breaking. I, I don't know. But, but here's the promise. This body was meant to stay here. But someday I have a, a heavenly temple. I'm going to shed this tabernacle. This thing is going away. And i got a temple waiting on me that Jesus made himself. And so it's going to be beautiful. Now verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. And so Paul here now wants to share with them a, a mystery. And the word in the Greek is mysterion. And it, it's not like a Scooby-Doo and a mystery machine. It's not a raggy. <laughs> it's not that kind of mystery. This is a, a hidden uh, gem that can actually be known as we 
dig as we press into him. He can make himself known to us. And what Paul says is, in this, uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. I did, as a side note, encourage Angela down in the nursery. I think this could be the verse for down there. Uh, We shall not all sleep, but we will be changed. And so she didn't think that was nearly as funny as I did at the consult the children's church director. Um, But right now, they're not all sleeping. Hopefully they get changed. Um, But here's what Paul wants to communicate. There are those who will not die that will be here when King Jesus comes back. Verse 52, he'll expand on that. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Now Paul is talking specifically about the rapture of the church. He's speaking of that time where as we've endured with him, there are others who have gone on before us, they're going to be raised up when Jesus comes back. But those of us who are left around, he in a twinkling of an eye, in a flash, we're going to be there together with him. and We're going to be glorified for all of eternity. Now Paul expands upon this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Beautiful promise of the rapture. Now there were some who will say the word rapture never appears uh, in the Bible. And so if you've ever heard that, uh, let me just share with you that this phrase caught up in the Greek is the word uh, harpazo. And if that uh, word was translated then into the Latin, when the Latin Vulgate was taken from the Greek manuscript, their word for caught up was the word rapturo, which is where we get our word rapture from. And so next time somebody wants to say that, just take them right here. I'm going to show you a little stuff about some Greek translated into Latin. But the reality is the word means to be snatched away quickly, to be caught up in a flash. And so this is the promise and the the promise of Jesus Christ coming back for us. Now, back to the text, verse 54. So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the law was perfect in what it did. The law pointed to our need for a Savior. But the problem with the law is it also condemned us. It proved you can't keep it. We can't even keep the top ten list. It's not even close for us. So this is why Paul says the victory is now through uh, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Now. All this was a quote from Hosea chapter 13. So Hosea writing here in Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 states this, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. This is what God's promise is to do to death. This is what uh, my version would say if I rewrote this scripture. Uh, Jesus promised to stomp a mud hole in death. 
That's exactly what he promised to do. I'm going to be the plague to death. I'm going to be the destruction to the grave and I have no pity on it. And so this beautiful promise is not that we are going to pass away, but actually that we're going to receive a job promotion. If you've ever listened to Pastor Chuck Smith that uh, founded the Calvary Chapel movement in Costa Mesa, when he would share about this, he would share with his big, uh, deep, booming voice, he'd say, someday you're going to read the newspaper. That was when they had newspapers. And you're going to see Chuck Smith died last night. Don't believe it. That's bad reporting. It should state, last night, Chuck Smith received a promotion. (laughs) And I love that. I've always loved his take on that. That It's not that we've died and passed away. It's, It's that we've received a job promotion. This is the way Pastor Chuck would view it and the way I would encourage you to view it as well. But the only way to receive the promotion is through the way. Jesus would say in John chapter 14, verse 6, if you're a highlighter of your Bible, this one's highlighter worthy. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way. But as we believe that, as that resonates in our heart, as we accept that, by faith we accept that. The ladies on Wednesday night read this verse as a part of their reading. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It's impossible without faith to please God. But as we have faith, and we're saved by faith through His grace, as we believe in Him, we then have the opportunity to believe this next part, which I love, that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You want to know His reward? An eternity in heaven. Glorified bodies. He is looking forward to promoting us, to rewarding us for those who just simply endure. Verse 58, as we wrap up this 15th chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He starts by saying, therefore, you guys know when we read that, we have to ask ourselves, what is it therefore? It refers us back to all the text we just read, two weeks worth of text. Paul's saying, in light of all this, everything I've shared with you about the resurrection, here's his encouragement to the church. I want you to be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. He wants to encourage them to know that their work is not in vain as they do. He's encouraging them because so often in our mind we ask ourselves, is it worth it? And no doubt there were those who believed in Corinth. They believed in Jesus and yet they were questioning things. All the sacrifice, all the worship, showing up at church early. Is this thing really worth it? Paul wants to communicate to them, yes, not only is it worth it, but it is eternal. In Galatians chapter 6, as he's speaking to the church in Galatia, he says in verse 9, Do not grow weary from doing good. Do you know why he shared that? Because they were growing weary from doing good. They'd grown weary. So often, this is us in this Christian walk, that we get stinking tired. We get weary. We are trudging through this life. We are dying daily, and yet we grow weary. If you've ever 
helped or served in church? I mean, is it worth it to get up early and study for that children's church lesson? Is it really worth praying those prayers for those loved ones that never seem to turn, never seem to listen? Is it really worth going and making that visit to the nursing home or to the hospital? We grow weary. What Paul's going to communicate here is it's all worth it. He's saying this because he knows they're getting tired. And he has promised to give us a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. He is a rewarder. He's a giver of good gifts. Now you might wonder, how does he base his reward system? What does God's reward system look like as we close? One last spot to turn in Scripture. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus here giving the parable of the talents. Famous parable. And as he is communicating with them, those who actually did well and invested what the Lord had given them, in verse 21, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You see, God is a rewarder, not based upon our production, not even based upon our efforts. He's a rewarder based upon our faithfulness. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, consider that. Like, we are so production-based as a society. I have to produce. There has to be fruit. And yet, Jesus says, enter into the joy of the Lord based upon your faithfulness. And what Paul's encouraging them to do here at the end of chapter 15 is just simply remain faithful. Remain faithful in the place that He's positioned you, in the place that He's called you. Remain faithful in that relationship that He's placed you in. That person that just will not get it. He's saying, I want you to endure. I want you to remain faithful because as you do, all these things that seem so trivial. I didn't do enough. I didn't say enough. I didn't produce enough. All that's going to fade away because there are eternal implications to just simply being Jesus with skin on to people around you. And you're not going to be held accountable for your production. You're going to be held accountable for your faithfulness. And all the results are actually all completely and totally based upon Him and Him alone. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And so, Father, we thank You and we praise You for the power of the resurrection. Lord, we thank You that all we are asked to do in this life is to remain faithful. That doesn't seem like a big ask, but i got to tell you, Lord, sometimes we struggle. It's hard, Lord. It's hard to stay with it. It's hard to stay faithful. And yet, what you've encouraged us in is that as we lack faith, you will be our faithfulness. And so even in the midst of this equation, however it works out, you actually give us the faith so that we can remain faithful and then be rewarded for that for all of eternity. Lord, there are some of us here today that really needed to hear that. We needed to be encouraged in that. So, Father, would you please communicate that to our hearts, that you're merely looking for faithfulness. In Jesus' name.